Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring CuriosityStream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. After my last video, I initially wanted to introduce the two pretenders from the Hollywood section today, but in light of very recent events, I changed my mind. It's very late as of me recording this. Let me preface this by explaining a few things. While the park is closed for the season, that of course does not mean we are allowed to stay at home. There are two reasons for this. For one, it would be utterly irresponsible to simply abandon the creatures in our care, and also we would not get paid a single cent. Paid leaves don't really exist in Dale's book. That means they do exist, but only on paper. Therefore, even though the park is completely void of visitors, each of us has to come in for at least a couple hours a day to check up on the pretenders. By the way, they aren't locked up at the moment. We decided on leaving them running around freely, since it would be torture to force them to stay in their enclosures during our absence. So, of course, we need to be alert. I don't really know when the others come in, so I got ready in the morning and arrived at the park around early noon. I was aware I would probably be the only one there, but I admit I like the quiet. Plus, you're never really alone with the not-actors at large. I obviously had my whip with me. Ever since I got around to learning how to use it, I've grown rather fond of it. It looks cool when I crack it, is what I'm saying. Dale had given me and the other actors extra keys for the employee entrance so we could get in and out effortlessly. I was not surprised to find the park completely deserted. While I was not sure where the other pretenders were at, I did not waste any time trying to find out. Instead, I determinedly headed for Mr. Scratch's cage. As expected, I found its door wide open, but the sock puppet was lying inside nonetheless, peacefully snoozing away. He's grown a bit lazy these days. He must have noticed me approaching, because as soon as I reached the cage, he perked up and clumsily rose to his feet. He sluggishly came trotting out to greet me, and I took my sweet time petting and scratching his shiny fur. I didn't need to put him on a leash today. Why would I? There were no visitors around he could potentially pose a threat to. We peacefully walked alongside each other for about half an hour, we did not encounter any of the other not-actors, which was very refreshing. Plus, it was nice being at my usual workplace and in my comfortable everyday clothing instead of the costume for once. Afterwards, I fed him some raw chicken, which he gobbled down in one go. I was really enjoying myself, so I wanted to keep strolling around the park. But the sock puppet apparently had a different idea. He returned to his shelter where he plopped down to take another nap. That was fine with me, though. Why not let him have his lazy days? I, for one, decided on taking another walk around the premises. There was not a soul out on the plaza or the streets. The fun houses looked even creepier with no one around. I figured the other not-actors were taking the same approach to their newfound freedom of movement, since I had yet to come across any of them. Though I was willing to bet that the sugar plum fairy was up on her little stage dancing. 
The thought of the pretenders hiding somewhere was rather unsettling, though. Before I knew it, I left the streets and reached the grassy part of the terrain on the outer edge of the park. I thought about going to the meadow and checking out the stagecoach, but changed my mind when I suddenly heard someone murmur. My mind instantly wandered to the likes of the mime, and I reached for my whip. However, upon looking around, I found that there was nobody there. Still on high alert, I proceeded to sneak along the fenced perimeter, until I finally spotted a man with his back turned to me a short distance ahead. I squinted, but soon recognized the familiar slouching posture of my manager Dale. A bit taken aback, but relieved that there was no pretender around after all, I walked up to him. He didn't notice me at first. Rather, he seemed to be focused on something he was holding in his hands, all while continuing to mutter inaudible phrases to himself. At first, I barely paid any attention to his behavior at all. I figured that now was a good time as any to talk to him about the Sugar Plum Fairy's enclosure. So I put on my finest good employee smile and quickly approached him. Good morning, I called out to him. His reaction was unexpected. He let out a startled gasp and spun around with wide eyes. Upon seeing me, he seemingly relaxed a little. I could now see the object in his hands as well. It was a slim, worn-out notebook. As soon as he noticed me staring at it, he slammed it shut. Shit, he growled, running his hand through his hair. What the hell's gotten into you? Why'd you have to sneak up on me like that? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you or anything, I said, trying to look like I actually cared. What are you doing? I added curiously. None of your business, he replied, eyeing me suspiciously. What did you see? He asked after a little while. Just you talking to yourself while holding a book, which is weird. That's why I asked. Dale nodded, and appearing to be a little more at ease, repeated, None of your business. He sounded a little friendlier this time, though. So, I began. Maxine and I have been wanting to ask you something, but before you say no, please hear me out. Dale sighed exasperatedly. Look, I don't really... His voice trailed off. Never mind. What do you want? Ignoring his slightly aggressive tone, I explained our situation about a larger enclosure for the Sugar Plum Fairy. See where I'm coming from? It's obvious all she wants to do is dance. If we give her more space, she'd be less reluctant to being locked up at night. And I don't think I have to tell you that that would save us a lot of trouble financially. Think of what it would cost to have an actor or another employee attacked and needing medical attention. On top of that, now that there's no one visiting the park, we'd have plenty of time to rehouse her and let her get used to her new home. With that, I finished my speech. Dale looked at me pensively for a few seconds before clearing his throat. I admit you do have a point. I beamed at him. Does that mean we'll do it? No. What? But why not? I asked. First off, We'd have to buy a larger trailer, and those things are expensive. No one from higher management is going to want to pay for some luxury van only for that tutu creep to dance around in it. Also, and I'm going to be frank here, who cares? Well, you sure don't, I muttered. Dale chuckled. Don't tell me you actually thought I wasn't going to see through this. It's for your own good. You shouldn't treat monsters with too much attention. If you start thinking of them as humans, 
things here will go downhill in no time. Sure, some of the other ones we have here might be a bit more agreeable, and for them I'd be willing to comply. But the fairy? Nah. -uh. Despite his condescending tone, I tried one last time to convince him with kindness. But couldn't we at least look for a better option? Maybe we'll find something cheap. You said yourself that we have a point. Come on. Please? Dale rolled his eyes. I hated myself a little for pleading with him like that. Look, it's not my decision to make. I get it. But Maxine and I would be very, very relieved if we could rehouse the fairy. Do it for us, then. He squinted. Are you hitting on me? I felt my stomach drop at the sheer thought. I had tried to be nice, but this wasn't it. I was so done with his crap. Not to be rude, but the laughing cowboy has better chances than you, I hissed. Dale threw his head back and laughed. Oh, I bet he does. This is it, I thought. I'm going to murder my manager. He must have sensed it, because he suddenly backed up a little and raised his hands. Chill out, girl. Let's not get physical here. If this is so important to you and Maxine, I'll meet you ladies halfway. If you can find a new, better enclosure for the Sugar Plum Fairy, I'll help rehouse her. I'll give you some money for it, but the park won't be able to pay for more than a third of it. We're not making a profit at the moment, so we gotta be careful with our savings. I found myself relax a little. That's actually nice. Thanks. I can work with that. Good, now. That that's out of the way. Would you mind leaving me alone? Yeah, um, what is it that you're doing here anyways? I repeated my question from earlier, in hopes of receiving an answer now that he was more cooperative. I already told you. It's none of your business, he replied. I decided to leave him be, but I kept watching him from a safe distance. He walked the length of the fence enclosing the park, nose buried in that worn notebook of his. I soon grew tired of observing him, so I returned to the sock puppet's cage to play with it some more. The image of Dale murmuring to himself while staring at his writings did not leave my mind, though. In the back of my head, I was conjuring up the strangest theories about what he could have been doing. Was he conducting some sort of ritual? Part of me wondered whether the notebook might be holding incantations of sorts, even though that sounds sort of ridiculous. I made my way home in the late afternoon. The sun was already setting as I headed out through the employee entrance. To my surprise, I encountered Maxine there. She told me she had come to check up on the Sugar Plum Fairy. She had apparently been at the park in the early morning hours already. She doesn't have a lot of work on her hands these days. I've never seen the fairy eat or drink or let on she required anything a normal person might need to live. As I said, all she does is dance. I relayed my conversation with the manager to Maxine. We've already asked some of our friends, including our co-workers, and it turns out Mitchell's dad has a very large trailer he wants to get rid of. He's willing to give it to us at a low price. So if Dale keeps his promise, we should be able to reaccommodate the fair unit very soon. I have since done some research on Dale too. At least, I tried. I know it's not a very sophisticated way of snooping around, but I googled his full name only to get no results other than him being listed as manager on the official website of our amusement park. I'm starting to think that maybe I should try and get my hands on that book he was carrying. 
I have not given up on finding out about the monster's origins yet. And if he is not going to answer my questions, maybe I'll just have to resort to more direct measures. Each time I am asked about incidents in the theme park that have caused casualties, I instantly remember one specific, extremely heartbreaking event that took place nearly two years ago. Since a lot of people have expressed interest in these kind of happenings, I believe this might be a good time to talk about it. We do not have casualties, as often as one might think. Surprising, I know. And it certainly isn't because management is particularly careful or something. This incident is more or less connected to a not-actor I introduced last time. The Mime. As you know, the creature unsettles me quite deeply. And for some reason actually likes him. She says that he's only creepy on us bad days, and that I should remember all the times he's been docile. She's delusional. Then again, I can kind of understand her. When you are assigned to a certain object or being, it's immediately a personal matter, and it can kind of start to grow on you. Me and my sock puppet are the perfect example. The night in question was a special one. I don't exactly remember why, but I do know there were some celebrations going on and that there was going to be a firework. For clarification, we had already had fireworks on multiple occasions, and none of the not-actors ever appeared to be bothered by them. Actually, I think I even saw the nurse look up dreamily at the sky, regarding them one time, one of the only occasions on which she has shown any sign of consciousness. Nobody could have expected what happened, and I don't think it had anything to do with the special show. The visitors had gathered on the main plaza of the Hollywood section. All the lights had been turned off, and the Ferris wheel wasn't even shining in its flashy colors anymore. All was quiet until the fireworks began. I remember standing a bit off sides next to Darius. We were staring at the night sky expectantly. When the first golden sparks illuminated the darkness, the whole crowd, including us, began to cheer. Soon the square was filled with noise. The voices of the guests and the sounds of the explosions should have drowned out everything else, except they didn't. I remember distancing myself from the crowd, because I thought I had heard someone scream. Not the normal, happy kind of shouting of the fireworks audience, though. I tried to ask Darius if he had heard it too, but he did not even hear me. He was too caught up in the moment, I guess. Nonetheless, I made my way over to where I had thought the scream had come from. I wandered the booths, main street, and restaurants. Almost everyone had gone off to watch the fireworks, and there were only a few employees left in the shops. At first, my search yielded no results. Still, I continued looking. Maybe there indeed was somebody in need of help somewhere after all. I don't remember where I found her exactly. I just know I rounded a corner and there she was. She was lying flat on her stomach in the middle of a street, between two restaurants. I don't think I've ever seen so much blood in one place before. I immediately ran up to her, not having quite fathomed yet that I was already too late. I turned her onto her back to find that her throat was torn, not slit, like one had used a knife on her, or like a wild animal had clawed at her neck. She was one of the restaurant waitresses. I recognized her uniform and apron, even though her clothes were covered in blood. I must have been standing over her body for a full minute before finally getting a grip on reality again and rushing off to get help. 
but just as I was turning around, I spotted familiar black and white stripes out of the corner of my eye. For a split second, and I am absolutely sure of this, I saw the mime cowering behind a trash can further down the street. The park was shut down immediately after I had reported my discovery. The police were called. We, the actors, that is, were tasked with gathering the pretenders in the back of the park, where the cops wouldn't find them. They didn't come looking, though. No one ever did. The mime acted very inconspicuous that night. There was no blood on his clothing or anything, and Anne kept assuring me my fear of him combined with the horrifying experience of discovering a dead body had caused me to see things. I had no choice but to relent. Plus, there was no way of proving anything. It was a bit unlikely that the mime could have gotten from the candy section to the Hollywood one and back in such little time. I'll admit that. Still, knowing that he's prone to deceive people, I would not want to discard that idea entirely. Dale seemed to at least believe me a little bit. He ordered to keep the mime in his cage for two entire months after that incident. According to him, it was to assess his behavior, but I think it was more akin to a punishment. When he was allowed back out, he was as peaceful as can be. I think it was him, though. After all, who else could have done it? On the paper, the casualty was not a casualty at all, by the way. The official story is that the waitress had chosen that night to commit suicide, and that it was Dale who had found her. Of course, that's complete nonsense. I don't think most outsiders would ever question this story. For all I know, the waitress lived by herself and had no closer relatives, so there was no one there to question it in the beginning. As for the police, I can only imagine how much money was paid under the table that night to keep the finer details from getting out. I've been suspecting management to have some sort of a deal with the local officials anyway. The park lost none of its prestige, and in the end, it's like the whole thing never happened. And that's exactly what bothers me. The death of a person being swept under the rug like that? It's terrifying to me, whether it was the mime who took her life or not. 